All right, we're now going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together. So we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. So every week we're going to open the Bible. We're going to study who Jesus is. We're going to see what he has to say to us from the scriptures, from the Old and New Testament. This summer we've been doing stories of the king, encouraging you to read, memorize, and retell these stories of Jesus that we find throughout the Gospels. We've been following along with the order of the Jesus Storybook Bible, and so as my wife just read from the Jesus Storybook Bible, we're now entering into the kind of final days. Uh, The betrayal of Jesus is where we are in this story coming up today, and so we're calling it Why We Betray Jesus. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. And we're going to be asking the question, why we betray Jesus. Now, it goes without saying probably for most of you, even if you didn't grow up hearing a lot of Bible stories, you know Judas is known as the ultimate betrayer, right? Judas and Brutus who betrayed Julius Caesar, right? But Judas is known as the ultimate betrayer. But we also see the other disciples betraying Jesus in perhaps smaller ways, but also falling away, stumbling is the way the word is often translated in the text. We see the religious leaders of the day betraying Jesus as well. And so we want to ask ourselves, why do we betray Jesus? And can we learn from these characters in this story who are falling away from Jesus, who are betraying him in different ways? One of my favorite stories that I used to read with my kids is the Chronicles of Narnia. That's the whole set of stories. There's a specific story, pretty famous, called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in the stories, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's a fantastical story where these kids during World War II find a kind of secret passageway into another world through a wardrobe. And they go into this other world, and in one instance, at the beginning of the book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, two of the children get separated. They find their way into this other world. One of them goes and meets the fawn, Mr. Tumnus, and has a nice chat with him, and hears about how evil this white witch is who is oppressing everyone and killing people and turning animals into stones, and that the true hero is Aslan the lion. He's a figure that represents Jesus as a hero. But Edmund, he gets lost, he gets separated, and he gets found by the white witch. But the white witch is sneaky. The white witch recognizes that Edmund is cold because he's wandering out in the snow, and so she offers him a coat and she offers him a warm drink, and then she offers him a sticky, sugary treat. It's called Turkish Delight in the story, but it's a wonderful dessert. Fills his tummy, actually so much so that he starts to get sick, but he still wants more. We we can relate to that, right? This is making me sick, but I'd like to have more. I think I did that last night at dinner, as a matter of fact. And so he is convinced by the white witch to go and get his brothers and sisters and deliver them to the white witch. And why does he do it? Why does he decide to betray his brothers and sisters? Well, he does it to fill his tummy. He does it also because she's promised to make him a king. And so that's a reflection of some of the things that we'll see in the story here. We often betray Jesus for comfort, for success, for money, for power, for many different reasons. And we see a similar story playing out in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'll read you one little paragraph. It says, when he met back up with Lucy and starts to to hear from her that the white witch is actually bad, it says, Edmund was already feeling uncomfortable from having eaten too many sweets. 
And when he heard that the lady he had made friends with was a dangerous witch, he felt even more uncomfortable. But, this is a big but, but he still wanted to taste that Turkish delight again more than he wanted anything else. Now, you may have never had Turkish delight, but there's something in our lives, I think, where we can relate to that and say, I just want another taste of that more than anything else. Biblically, sometimes that's referred to as idolatry, where we take a good thing, a wonderful treat like dessert, or the promise of authority and power, and we say, I'm going to make that my savior. That's going to become more important to me than Jesus himself. And quickly we begin to betray the Lord of the universe for this secondary power that might be good for a little while, but it really can't deliver us. It really can't save us. So we see a lot of echoes in this text in John chapter 18. Let's read starting in verse 1. We'll read the story of the betrayal of Jesus. John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. We'll stop there. I want to just hang for a minute on this beautiful picture of Jesus being betrayed, still being in control. Do you see that? He's using the I am statements, which if you don't know throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the I am statements to connect himself with the Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, who reveals himself as the great I am. And here's Jesus saying, I am he. I am the man you're looking for in this, this crazy uh, series of events, when he says that, they, they literally fall back. They fall on the ground. They're freaked out. They're scared of him. And so we see this beautiful picture that our king is still powerful, and our king is still in control, and our king is still sovereign, even in this moment of betrayal. And it shows him caring for his disciples. He says, don't take them, just take me. You see him sheltering them, guarding him, being the king who we can count on to take care of us, even in these worst moments of life. We're going through some weird things in our culture and have been for months. And it will be easy for us to face this temptation or give in to this temptation to think that Jesus has left me. He's not really in control anymore. The world is spinning out of control and I've, I've got to go take care of my own. But here again we see... At his worst, at his weakest, during his betrayal even, Jesus is still taking care of his own. And we can count on Jesus to take care of us as well. If you don't hear anything else today, hear that. 
you can trust him. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to unpack then as we look at the different characters, how we often betray Jesus as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in this picture, even at his lowest moment, after after sweating drops of blood, after crying in the garden, Matthew tells us, we see Jesus standing up for his disciples and saying, I'm the man, leave them, take me. God, we thank you that you are that kind of hero that we need. And Lord, we confess we all bring different worries right now. There have been things that have been waking me up in the middle of the night, unanswered questions. Lord, I know for many of us, that's where we're living right now, unsure of the future, but we are sure of you. And we see that picture, even in the betrayal of Jesus in the garden. He's still a hero, even as he knowingly goes to his death. So God, we thank you for that confidence we get in this little picture, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us in the telling and the explaining of your word, that we would be spiritually transformed. Because nothing else is working for us right now, Lord. We need you. We need you. We pray that you'd meet us here, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we also betray our king. And so I want us to be thinking about that personally. Why do we betray Jesus? And as we look at these other people betraying Jesus, do we see echoes of our own hearts? There's nothing in this text that's not normal and common to human beings. And so we want to recognize that he is a great and gracious king who forgives us and who calls us to recognize our betrayal and then come back to him. You hear that? We all betray him. We need to recognize that betrayal, repent, turn, come back to Jesus. And so as we look through the text, just kind of using the characters, we see this reflection of the different ways we betray. We betray for money, number one. We betray so that we can be king ourselves. We want to push him off the throne. We betray so that we can be king. And then finally, we betray just to survive. We're just scared, and we don't know anything else to do. And often we betray Jesus in those terrifying moments. So the first thing I want us to see is that we betray for money. We betray our king for money. Look again at verses 1 through 9. You might remember if you've studied the Gospel of John earlier when Jesus was anointed, earlier chapters, we see that Judas complained about the expensive perfume being wasted on Jesus. Jesus said, no, this is a beautiful thing. It's a good thing to worship me, to honor me, to anoint me for my burial, he explains. And then John makes a little note in that story and says, well, really, Judas wasn't concerned about saving the money for the poor, which is what he said, but he had been stealing the money for himself. And so we have a clarification by the authors of the Gospels. Actually, Judas was stealing money for himself. That was his main goal, was to get more money. He thought money could buy him happiness or success. Same thing happens to us, right? We make decisions based on money, not based on how can I glorify God in the greatest way with this opportunity? Or how can I obey Jesus most faithfully? We often make decisions based on how can I get some money or how can I keep my money? And so we want to be thinking about that in our own lives. When do we betray our king for money? Verse 1 again It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. So if you want to read a parallel account that gives us more details, Matthew 26 is really helpful. And there in Matthew 26, we get these details that are not in this story, 
that kind of all happens in between these couple of verses here, where Jesus asks his kind of closest three companions, Peter, James, and John, to watch and pray because he's coming apart. He's about to die. He's coming undone, and he's praying and crying and sweating in the garden. And he's saying, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup of judgment pass from me. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus in his final moments praying to the Father, and he gives us a pattern to follow as well, how we can pray and we can be honest. And instead of running to the way we can get the most money, we could pray and say, Father, it looks like I'm going to lose everything. And that is not my will. Will you save me from economic collapse? Will you save me from losing my job? Will you save me from this terrible situation? Yet, ultimately, not my will, but your will be done. Father, I trust you more than I trust myself. And so we see this model in Jesus, even in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 26. Back to John 18, this story goes on. It says, Judas knew the place. He often met there with his disciples. So verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It just seems like a minor detail to us, but remember, Jesus was always peaceful. He was always healing people, teaching them the Bible, teaching them to follow God. And here they're coming after him with torches and lanterns and weapons. He's praying peacefully to his heavenly father. He's meeting in this garden retreat, right? His place of of quiet time with his father has now been violated. He's being attacked and they're coming after him with weapons. Verse four, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. Now, why did he betray? We're told later that Judas was given 30 pieces of silver. Judas was given 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. We're told earlier that Judas was constantly stealing money from the money bag. And so we have to ask the question, man, if I had this opportunity to make a little more money, would that buy me more security than following this invisible God? who I can't see. Have you ever thought that? Sure, I can, I, can, I can be faithful to God maybe, but I really need money. I really need to have a better retirement account. I really need a better car. That's always where it hits me, right? That's where my moments of faith crisis happen. We've always got some car issue happening. I'm thinking, maybe, maybe if, I just, if I just had more money, then this wouldn't be a worry, right? Or if I just had a better car, you might be thinking, if I just had a better job, what is the money that's going to provide the way for you? Or what is the way to get the money, right? It might be for you, you're thinking, I got to get an education. Why? Well, I'm not really worried about an education. I just need to make more money. So I got to get an education to make more money, right? That's how we are often. Or I've got to move and take this promotion that I'm being offered. Why? Is it good for my family? No, it's going to hurt my family. Is it good for me? No, it's probably going to hurt my soul. 
Is it really going to be the best use of my gifts? No, it's not going to be the best use of my gifts, but it's a promotion, and I'm going to make more money, so I've got to do it, right? Have you ever gone down that chain of logic? You have to do the thing that makes more money. Our culture is very driven by money, and so it's so logical and reasonable and just the way we all operate that it's easy to miss. No, sometimes you can make a decision to give up more money if it helps you to be more faithful to Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? You're thinking, I've, I've seen this happen a lot of times, so I'm, I'm about to go from preaching to meddling. All right, are you ready? If you're in the military, a lot of our, lot of our community is, is in the military. You've made the decision already, right? You've already decided, this is what's best for my family. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I have to, to do. And then you're offered the bonus, Right? I hear they offer bonuses to keep you in. You've already made the decision. Nope, there's a bonus. Okay, never mind. That's not really what's best for my family anymore. And I just want to be clear. Of course you need money. I need money. We buy food with money, right? We, we need money. It's not wrong to need money. What's wrong is to say the money is more important than faithfulness to Jesus. That's the line. So if you take that promotion, can you still be faithful to Jesus? If you make that move, can you still be faithful to Jesus? Is that going to help you to follow him and to love him and to love others? That, that's really the question. For Judas, it's pretty clear. For Judas, it's like, nope, done. I googled a, a picture that I think symbolically might help you to think about this. It's uh, these people climbing ladders up into the sky. There's this old, I guess it's a proverb or old saying that a lot of times you can climb a ladder to the top and then find that it's leaning against the wrong building. Have you ever heard that? I think it's been said in different ways. You're climbing this ladder, you're climbing this ladder, you're just kind of told this is the way to success. And you're like, all right, I want to be successful. And you keep climbing. I want more money. I want the promotions. And you climb and you climb and you climb. And then you get to the top and you're like, where am I? Why did I climb to the top of, of this mountain or this building? And so we have to prayerfully ask ourselves, what, what's the point? What is God calling me to do? The big question is simple. He's calling you to love him and love others. And then working that out in our daily circumstances, that's a lot more difficult. I will admit that's not easy. But it starts with prayer and it starts with our heart. It starts with looking inward and saying, God, what do you want me to do? What does it look like for me to obey you? What does it look like for me to follow you and to trust you more than I trust in money? Again, we all need money. Everybody, I hope you have a job. I hope you're making money, right? But what does it mean for you to trust Jesus more than the money? That's really the question. How much money do you need? What does success look like? Does it ever end? Do you ever arrive? Or is it always more? What would make you betray Jesus? This is a good time to look at it and say, man, I could be bought for this much to name that, to repent and say, Jesus, show me how to follow you faithfully with the money that I have, with the money that you've given me. One of the best ways to apply this is the practice of generosity. As Christians in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, God's people are just supposed to be faithful with sharing what they have. That's one of the best ways to loosen our grip on our stuff, is to share. Maybe you have some things that you could give away. Maybe you have some money that you could use to help others in need. As we practice this kind of generosity, that's a really good way for us to loosen the grip that money has 
on our own soul. Well, we'll pick up the story with a little interlude that we're going to, I'm going to read and then we're going to come back to it because it's focusing in on Peter, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So this is really interesting after knowing in Matthew 26, we see him praying this prayer. Of course, I don't want to drink this cup of judgment, but whatever God you have for me, I'm going to do it. And here Peter, in a way, is tempting Jesus, right? Peter's like, we can fight. We've got swords. We can win this, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, I'm... I'm being betrayed for a purpose. I'm going to the cross. This is the Father's goal, that I would die on a cross as the ultimate sacrificial lamb, the lamb that all of the other Old Testament sacrifices have pointed to. I'm the one that will die to take away your sins, my sins, Jesus is telling Peter and telling the others. If we use swords, Jesus is saying that I'm never going to go to the cross. And so, He says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now we're switching and we're coming to the story of uh, the betrayal of the religious leaders. So the band of soldiers, pick up in verse 12, the band of soldiers and their captain and officers for the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Um, this is one of those confusions when you read the Bible. There's a kind of a back and forth between Caiaphas and Annas. Um, and what we have here is they were in the family. And so it was kind of like a mafia family of high priests. Um, when you read all the other commentaries, they explain that sometimes they'll refer to it as, as uh, Caiaphas, sometimes it's Annas. And they kind of go back and forth because they were working together. Um, and so one was like, not officially the high priest anymore. And so then, you know, son-in-law or relative comes in and becomes the technical high priest, but it's still shared within the family. So that's just a minor detail. If you ever notice and you're reading the other gospel accounts of this account, it gets kind of confusing. It's like, well, which is it? Is it Annas? Is it Caiaphas? In a way, it's both of them serving as high priest together. Um, Verse 16, uh, verse 15, excuse me, back again to Simon Peter. Simon Peter followed Jesus, so he's following him to the high priest's house, another, uh, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So he's in the courtyard. But Peter, verse 16, stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch of the door, and brought Peter in. So now two of these disciples are able to come into the courtyard not all the way inside the house, but in the outer court of this house of the high priest and kind of watch and listen and see what's going on. So he went out, verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? She's like, wait, talking to Peter, aren't, aren't you one of the disciples? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. This is great storytelling. He tells us, introduces us the story of of Peter here a little bit. Peter denies him. Peter betrays Jesus. Nope, I'm not a follower of Jesus. He's going to leave us hanging. We'll come back to Peter. So let's read more about the high priest and the Jewish leaders. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. 
Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So again, back and forth. Which, is, which high priest is it? Well, it's, it's really both of them. Annas and Caiaphas are both serving, in a sense, as the high priest. One more technically so. One more is kind of like uh, the godfather of high priests. But we see them striking Jesus. We see Jesus saying, why are you striking me? I haven't actually done anything wrong. Jesus is saying, I'm innocent. Why is this that you're putting me on trial? And so my second point is, we betray so that we can be king. We betray so that we can be king. And we see the Jewish leaders doing this hardcore. We see the Jewish leaders saying, we cannot have this guy be in power. This guy's going to upset the balance of power. We need to hold on to our power. We need to remain king ourselves because things are very tricky. Our way of life is being threatened. We have this Roman pagan culture who's conquered us, and they're giving us a little freedom to practice our religion and do our own thing. And this Jesus is threatening that. If the people all follow Jesus, then we will no longer get to continue our way of life. And we need to recognize the temptation that can be drawn out in our own hearts as well. Because remember, we always see the Jewish leaders as the bad guys in the Gospels. But those of us that are faithful Bible readers and faithful Bible obeyers, we have more in common with the Jewish leaders than anybody else. So we have to take long, hard looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, these are the guys that were fighting for political power and trying to read their Bibles and obey it. And does that awaken something in our own hearts where we say, man, maybe, maybe I'm guilty of this as well. Maybe I would be willing to betray my king so that I could be king, so that I could have some sort of political or cultural power. I want to be real clear about this. As, as I vote, I, I tend to vote according to what I think is right, according to what I think biblical values of justice are. And I also have in mind as a preacher I want to vote in such a way in our country so that I retain the right to preach Jesus publicly. Because you know what? I'm just going to be real honest with you. I do not want to be thrown in jail for preaching about Jesus. So I just want to be clear about that. I also want to hold on to whatever little sliver of political power I can have. So again, kind of like the money thing. Is it right to have money? Is it right to take a promotion? Sure, there's nothing wrong with that. The question is, are you going to betray Jesus for it? And so again, to think about being king, having power as Christians, is political power advantageous? If it helps us to preach the gospel, if it helps us to protect the innocent, if it helps us to do what's right, well, of course, there's some common sense political power that we would like to have as Christians. We just got to really be careful that it doesn't draw our hearts away from seeing Jesus as our ultimate king and recognizing, just as Peter whacked off that ear, Jesus said, put away your sword. This is not how the kingdom of God is going to come in. I I would translate that as we 
make our vote thinking, whack, I'm making my vote. This is going to solve everything. I imagine Jesus saying, set aside your ballot. That is not how the kingdom of God is coming in. I don't think he's going to say, don't vote. I I do think we should vote, right? I think that's part of being a good citizen in our country. We got to be a part of the process. This is the the tightrope that we walk as believers. We've got to stay involved in the process and know that the process doesn't bring in the kingdom. Isn't that crazy? And so even as I say this, I know I've gotten hate mail already the last six months. Even as I say, we can't put all our hope in the political process, people think that means that I'm saying we shouldn't care, right? Or we should go crawl in a hole. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying our hearts have to stay faithful to Jesus. We have to obey him first. And no matter how we vote, some kind of evil and corruption is going to take place as a result of it. So we've got to pray, be clear. Okay, God, I think this is what you're telling me to do. Do what we think is the best. And just know that's not going to solve it. It may take one little step. If everything goes well, it might help some things, some people, but it's not going to bring in the kingdom of Jesus. So we've got to recognize in our own hearts how we, just like the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, can fight for political power and actually be fighting against Jesus. There was a really creepy article in the New York Times. I know the New York Times is an uh, uh, anti-Christian you know, newspaper and all that. I understand that, so don't send me hate email about that. But it was a really interesting article, and it said, Christianity will have power. You could Google it if you get a chance. It's just very interesting. Christianity will have power. Isn't that a paradox? Does that sound like a paradox to you? Doesn't that sound like an oxymoron? Christianity will have power. It's a really interesting article. I don't endorse everything in the article. And honestly, it's more observational, but it's just saying how interesting it is how Christians want political power. Isn't that interesting? Again, I... I think it'd be better for me to be able to preach Jesus and not get thrown into jail than for me to get thrown into jail, right? So I have these desires. Um, I, I'd love to protect the innocent. I'd love to vote in ways that stand for biblical righteousness and, and to see the rule of law take place. But I also know there's only so much that political power can accomplish. And so we got to make sure we understand that historically the way that Christianity has power is by not having power. That's actually the way of the cross. And we've got to wrestle with that. So again, I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong to want to have advantages, uh, to want to vote for what's right. We just have to be careful that we recognize that being king or having political power is not the answer. Jesus is the answer. One of my favorite uh, music videos is Johnny Cash's redo of the song Hurt. Um, The song Hurt was done by Nine Inch Nails, which is a kind of really grimy addiction song uh, written by a young person facing addiction. And so the song called Hurt is just kind of wrestling through that slavery to addiction Trent Reznor wrote years and years ago. And then Johnny Cash redid it basically right before he died. And there's this one line where he talks about my empire of dirt. You see Cash, there's a picture of Cash pouring out wine on this uh, elaborate table with this great meal. And the setting is really eerie in the video because it's got Johnny Cash having this elaborate, wonderful banquet meal, and they have it set in his museum, which was falling apart 
and actually then later burned down. So this guy who is a rock star and a country star dies a year later, and he records this as one of his last songs before he dies, and it's kind of like a confessional in a sense, right? Confession of all the pain and all the hurt and how we all too often, I believe Johnny Cash actually had a real faith in Jesus, and that's what led him to be able to have this kind of honest confession. But all too often, we work so hard to build our own empire of dirt, is the way it's worded in the song. My empire of dirt. What kind of empire are you working for? What kind of temporary power are you working for? What kind of temporary kingdom do we strive for? And we want to name that and repent and say, Jesus is the ultimate king. Jesus is king. How does the way we vote point to Jesus being king? How does the way we live our lives point to Jesus being king? How does the way we serve our coworkers at work point to Jesus being king? Point to the fact that he's our ultimate hope. Again, what we want to be clear is, do we need to be involved in society? Do we need to vote? Yeah. Do we need to care about power and organization and these kind of things? Yes, we have to care and be concerned about these things. Just don't let them pull your heart away from Jesus thinking that's the way that Jesus' kingdom will, will come here on earth. Jesus will establish his kingdom through the paradox of, of death. So we need to repent of this, what I would say is confusing religion with power. As long as we keep them as two separate things, I think that helps keep things clear in our mind. Our justification cannot lie in making the right political choice, right? Because every political choice we make is going to have secondary consequences that we don't fully understand. It's not always going to be the right choice. We just make the best choice we can make with the information we've got. We pray, we study, make the best choice we can make. But our justification before God, our righteousness before God doesn't come from making that right choice. Where does it come from? It comes from Jesus justifying us by, by taking our sin on the cross, by giving us his resurrection life. That's where our justification comes from, which is what gives us the freedom to make unsure choices in life, to go out and risk, to, to live like in the parable of the talents with reckless abandon. Instead of being the one who, who buries our talent and says, the political process is too scary, I'm just going to pull out all together because I don't know where it'll lead, right? That can, be like, that can be like the one burying his talent in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents where one of the servants says, I knew you were harsh, you were unfair, and you were going to judge me based on how well I performed. And even in the end, you were going to be unfair in your judgment. Whereas the others invest their talents because they knew the master was gracious. And so we, we take what we have and we say, Jesus has justified me. I'm a free son, daughter of the king. I belong to him. So now I can go out and make the best decisions that I can make. Study, yes. Read, yes. Pray, yes. Talk to people, yes. Don't just scream at people on Facebook, but actually talk to people, okay? Your friends that have an opposite political view than you, but still love Jesus, ask them why. Don't yell at them and try to convince them right off the bat. Just ask them why. Have a conversation and say, okay, let me understand you better. Let's love each other. Let's honor each other and then use whatever talent, whatever resources God has given us for his glory. With the freedom of an external righteousness that comes from Jesus, then we can make the wisest choice possible. Then we're not bound by, oh, I've got to, if I don't make the right choice, then, then I'm going to hell. No, 
You're free in Christ if he's died on the cross for your sins. Do you trust him? Do you trust in him as your king? If you do, then you can use whatever power he's given you to serve him and to serve others. The last thing that I see in the story is that we betray Jesus often just to survive. And so this is coming back again to Peter. So Peter's story has been kind of sprinkled in, right? We saw him betray Jesus by saying, no, I'm not one of his followers. And now the story picks up in verse 25. Let's pick up the story there in verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. So now this is the second time. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. So this is kind of interesting. Usually, like if you have a friend who gets their ear cut off, it's going to burn that memory in your brain, right? Like that's going to be a stronger memory. And so uh, we see this one saying, he was a relative of the guy whose ear Peter had cut off. It's like, didn't, didn't I see you? I think I recognize the guy that cut my cousin's ear off. Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. If you don't remember, if you're not familiar with the, the Bible story, you go look back at John chapter 13 where Jesus says, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. Rooster crows, and Peter's probably remembering what Jesus had said. And so we have this heartbreaking moment, heartbreaking moment, where Peter does what he thought he never would do, right? Think back on the character of Peter. Again, encourage you to read the Gospels for yourself if you're not familiar with these characters, but go back and read through the Gospels. Read John, read Matthew, read Mark and Luke, And we see that Peter is always the most brash. He's seen as the leader of the apostles. He's the most decisive. He's the most quick to act. He seems to be the bravest. He's the one of all the disciples that grabs a sword and fights for Jesus. I mean, there's a lot to respect there, right? Especially in a military town, we're like, all right, I I can respect the dude with the sword. And yet here he is afraid. Here he is just doing whatever he can do to survive. He's like, man, it's all falling apart now. I'm not a Jesus follower anymore. Have you ever been at that point where your back was against the wall and you felt like this is, this is going to ruin everything if they know my allegiance to Jesus? One of the great wonders, one of the great privileges we have in our culture is the great freedom we have to follow Jesus. And I think culturally over the last 20 years, that's been part of what is so scary is in a in a culture that's generally founded on the Judeo-Christian worldview, we see um, more and more threats to the public proclamation of Jesus. We see more how it's kind of become cool or kind of become popular to make fun of Jesus' followers. And that's, that's scary. That can be threatening. But again, I want to encourage you not to abandon Jesus just so you can survive, but to recognize that, that Jesus after actually works through these difficult times. Jesus actually works through our faithfulness to us, uh, faithfulness to him in these difficult situations. I have a picture here, a famous uh, painting by Caravaggio of St. Peter being crucified upside down. Have y'all ever heard this story before? Peter supposedly was crucified upside down. That's not in scripture, but that's kind of a tradition that we're told. He was going to be crucified and he didn't consider himself worthy of dying in the same way as Jesus, so he asked to be hung upside down. Don't know if that's true, but we know he died, right? We know he died for being an apostle. As a matter of fact, best we can tell, all the apostles died except for John, 
who died in exile. So in a, in a way, died alone in exile because he was a follower of Jesus. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Here's the paradox. We, we want to abandon Jesus for money in this world when we're told that we are heading to a future where we have the inheritance, we join in the inheritance of the king of the universe. So we've already got all the money in the world, right? So why would we betray him in this world for money? We often betray him for power so we can be king and yet we are sons and daughters of the king of the universe, right? And we get to rule and reign with him in heaven, we're promised. And then here, I'm talking about this just, this kind of fearfulness, this just basic desire to survive that tempts us to betray Jesus. Peter knew and he relearned later that giving your life for Jesus actually leads to a fuller life in heaven, to eternal life. And so the question I want us to think about is, how do you see the life that you have here and now? What's the purpose of it? We live in a world of death and decay. Really the question is, are you going to use your life of death and decay to serve others, to glorify God and to love those around you? Or are you going to waste your life of death and decay on yourself? Either way, we're all going to fall apart and die, right? I joke that every year I get older, I'm more sure of this. I am confident as little portions of my body fall apart and break piece after piece, year after year. That's where we're all headed. The question is, what are you going to spend that on? What are we going to spend our broken lives on? Paul says this in Colossians, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I'm a minister, a steward. Paul is saying that we fill up in our bodies. Paul was very clear on it as an apostle, but this is also something we do. We fill up in our bodies what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And that word lacking doesn't mean the cross is not enough to save us. The cross is enough, but not everybody knows about it, and that's what's lacking. So we fill up in our bodies what is lacking in the delivery of the afflictions of Christ to the world. That is our purpose. And right now, a lot of us get to do that in a pretty cushy, middle-class context. Thank you, Lord, for a house and for food and a car and these basic things. Those are great gifts. But our purpose is to fill up in our flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, to deliver those sufferings to the world, to, to burn up our lives for him, to spend them for his glory. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. What's really beautiful about the betrayal of Peter is it wraps back around at the end of the Gospel of John. Again, a lot of you might be familiar with the story, but Peter betrays Jesus by a charcoal fire three times. I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. He starts cursing, he starts yelling, I don't know him. And then Jesus, after the resurrection, comes back to Peter and he makes him some barbecue. He's grilling some fish. Where? Over a charcoal fire. 
You know how smells remind us of things? I'm thinking Jesus did that on purpose. And he's recalling for Peter how he let him down. And he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Well, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And I, I want us to hear that as well. Jesus restores, forgives, and gives purpose to Peter. He does the same thing for us. All of us have betrayed Jesus in all these different ways. And Jesus is saying to you right now, and he's saying to me, do you love me? Well, then feed my little ones. Do you love me? Then then give me away to those that are struggling and hurting and need to hear my voice. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and you've proven that by dying on the cross. We see this picture of Jesus being betrayed and yet being utterly confident, protecting his disciples, freely giving his life away. God, guard our hearts against the different ways that we're tempted to trust in in money or political power, our own kingdoms, to, to trust in just the instinct to survive our letting our fears run away with us. Father, help us to be stayed on you, to, to see you as our security, as our rock, as our fortress. Help us to see you as our only hope. Thank you that you gave yourself for us in Christ. And we pray in his name, amen.